0: Congress is back in session and ready to take on the number one crisis facing America, namely that Congress is back in session. The lawmakers return to Washington facing a full agenda, including financing the government so they can get money to pay for Congress so they can finance the government so they can get money to pay for Congress so they can finance the government. D.C. residents welcomed the legislature back by running away from the Capitol building in a panic mob, clutching their wallets and screaming as if Godzilla was chasing them. When they found out Godzilla actually was chasing them, they calmed down and said, that's a relief. We thought it was Congress. On the House side, Democrat Jerry Nadler said he had enjoyed a lazy summer, just wasting time and spending money by way of practicing for his return to government work. Nadler's list of things to do includes threatening to impeach President Trump, threatening to investigate President Trump, threatening to investigate impeaching President Trump, and subpoenaing the last few Americans he hasn't interrogated yet including the scary clown from the Stephen King movie and the guy who runs the Dairy Queen in Aspenwall, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Pittsburgh. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she was happy to come back from wherever she'd been to wherever she was now and was looking forward to churning out useless anti-Trump bills that would never become law until she had completely wasted the rapidly dwindling time remaining to her life. In the Senate, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell listed his priorities as getting more judges confirmed, talking very slowly with a deadpan expression, and then getting more judges confirmed and then talking slowly some more. McConnell was asked yesterday why he hadn't mentioned gun control in his agenda. He should be done with his answer sometime this afternoon. Meanwhile, though the parties remain sharply divided, Congress hopes to bring the nation together on the issue of giving them more money for their important work of getting more money. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I the hunky-dunky. Life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky dunky Ship-shaped, dipsy topsy the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day. Hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Hooray, hooray. All right. You know, on this show, there's no one, absolutely no one. We love more than the IRS. I know you just love to have the IRS just drop in and say hello, drop by your house, come by your place of work. Sometimes you open your bedroom closet and there they are. And you are right to be afraid of these guys. The IRS has the power to take everything you've got, your bank accounts, your paycheck, your home, your business. But if you owe back taxes, you can get yourself out of that situation with Optima Tax Relief. Here's what you need to do. You call Optima Tax Relief because there's a reason Optima has resolved over a billion dollars of tax debt for people like you. Optima takes over and fights for you to end your IRS nightmare, helping to stop the demand letters, stop aggressive collection actions, and stop the IRS from targeting you. Call Optima and ask about the Fresh Start Inif- Initiative, a special IRS program that could save you thousands if you qualify. Nobody knows more about this powerful IRS program than Optima. Call Optima for your free consultation now while you have options. Tomorrow you might not. one 800 658 8044 1 800 658 sorry 8044 I'll do it again 1 800 658 8044 1 800 658 8044 Some restrictions apply for complete details please visit optima All right uh, when I was a kid really before I was even a teenager I remember listening to things that people said to me and asking myself is that true or is it just easy? I find myself still asking that question a lot today, I guess because I'm from that generation that listened to John F. Kennedy say we're going to the moon, not because it was easy, but because it was hard. And this is one of the reasons, you know, I don't like a lot of Christian entertainment. For that matter, I don't like a lot of Christian thought and preaching, and my central problem with it is that it makes faith look easy and happy and pleasant instead of difficult, a difficult road to a higher joy. I think conservatives do the same thing with politics. We tell you capitalism and freedom and morality are gonna make everything better, And that is true in the grand sense, but not always true in your immediate life right now. In fact, what we conservatives and we Christians are proposing is hard. It's a harder life, and it's only a better life in a high sense, not necessarily in the low sense. Abortion is a perfect example. You're a guy. You get a girl pregnant. You don't want to marry her. She doesn't want to marry you. You've both got your careers and your social life going on. Neither of you wants to have a baby. Abortion is easy. Doing what's right is hard. The Democrats keep telling us that climate change is our World War II, which at least has the benefit of being hilarious. World War II, everybody's son, husband, and father, even movie stars, millionaires, left home, went to endure the rigors of basic training, and many of them risked being shipped out into mortal danger to push back against a cancerous present evil. With climate change, a bunch of wealthy Democrats funnel your tax dollars to billionaire political donors in order to subsidize their useless businesses with the word green in the title to fight back against clouds. Risking your personal life for righteousness' sake is hard. Virtue signaling and risking nothing while flying on your private jet to green energy conferences is easy. Welfare is easy. Work and risk are hard. Sex with strangers is great. Building a relationship is hard. Drugs are fun, sobriety is hard. If you ever wonder why we as conservatives and as Christians feel like we're swimming upstream in the great debate of our time, it's because we are. This is a country that has generated a lot of wealth and offers a lot of ease and fun and virtue signaling for no apparent cost and no apparent risk. The fact that it'll one day all collapse on our grandchildren is really not that big a worry. They'll think of something and we'll be dead then, So, so what? We have to understand the human brain, the human body are not built for freedom. They don't like it, they don't want it. They wanna eat and drink and screw and screw around. In times of scarcity, we do what's right out of necessity. When the money comes rolling in, we do what comes naturally. My generation inherited the wealth of centuries. We went nuts. We threw it all away and we sold you a crap philosophy of free stuff and free sex and murdered babies and unsustainable debt And you bought that crap philosophy because it was easy. And now, conservatives and Christians are asking you to give up that easy life in exchange for hard reality and truth and noble joy. It sucks to be you. Tomorrow, the mailbag is uh, coming up. Don't forget, it is. you go on dailywire.com, you hit the (laughs) the podcast button. (laughs) <laughs> oh, thank you. I thought I thought I heard in the distance. I I heard screaming in the distance. That is the mailbag, the famous mailbag scream. Go on the dailywire.com, scream that scream, and then hit the podcast button, then scream that scream again. Hit the Andrew Claven podcast, scream that scream one more time, and then hit the mailbag picture. And you can ask me if you are a subscriber, you gotta be a subscriber for a Lousy 10 bucks a month, a Lousy hundred bucks for the year. If you are a subscriber, you can ask me anything you want. You can ask me about your personal life, you can ask me about religion, uh, you can ask me about politics. All my answers are 100% guaranteed correct (laughs) and will cause you to scream that scream. My answers will change your life on occasion for the better. And listen, some of you write me uh, personally and ask me personal questions. I can't really answer your questions outside of the mailbag. Not allowed uh, to do that. So please subscribe and get your questions into the mailbag. I would like to uh, solve all your problems for you, but it costs you a lousy 10 bucks a month. Um, What else? You know, just as before I went on the air, I saw that uh, John Bolton has been uh, canned. He's been kicked out of the Oval Office. Uh, Trump said that uh, they just disagreed on too much and he fired him. He asked for his resignation and Bolton has left. Uh, But since I haven't had time to look into that, I won't, um, you know, I won't talk about it uh, too much today, but I will talk about it tomorrow. Obviously, Uh, I know they disagreed a lot on Iran, Bolton, Bolton, you know, I love John Bolton. I think he's great. But, you know, John Bolton, I always say if your toilet got clogged up, he would call in like a bombing raid to open up your toilet. Uh, He's a a hawk. And uh, I'm sure he was not happy about what happened with the Afghanistan, with the Taliban stuff. Um, So I'm sure we'll find out more about that as things go on. And it'll be absolutely great to find John Bolton a hero of the left, Remember, the left has always hated Bolton. They always—I mean—they despised him. Remember, they twisted themselves in knots to keep George W. Bush from making him the ambassador to the UN. Bush had to appoint him in an interim as an interim appointment. Then, the minute Congress came back, they threw him out again, and uh, they just hate him. So suddenly, now that Trump has fired him, it's going to be that wonderful patriot, that patriot John Bolton. How how could Bush have done anything? Bush, Bush anything Trump does, the opposite uh, has to be uh, true. So now that Trump has fired him, it'll be. John Bolton the hero. So for me, who is laughing through the apocalypse, I mean, that's why I'm here. One of my favorite sources of comedy is watching these nudnicks try and sell their fantasies as reality while actually trying to convince you that the reality in front of you isn't there. I call this reading the news. So here are two columns from the New York Times, a former newspaper. We go right into the heart of New York Times darkness on Knucklehead Row. Oh, hey, hey. To like on that row. So Paul Krugman is one of the biggest knuckleheads on knucklehead row. I love the guy. I, I don't think he has ever said anything that turned out to be true. I don't think he's ever made a financial prediction that was true. I don't think any political thing he says is ever true. I don't think anybody, I think the people who listen to him are the people who like wear aluminum hat, aluminum foil hats and sit around talking about, uh, you know, how Donald Trump is going to prison any minute when they find him in bed with Putin or whatever. Uh, and I think that's the Paul Krugman audience. The fact that he has a Nobel Prize for some obscure economic theory, which apparently wasn't bad, uh, but now his economics has been so polluted by politics that it's just absurd. His column today is a triumph of Paul Krugmanism. It is like a, cl- a classic. It's called How Democracy Dies, American Style. And I bring it up because one of the th- things that I-, I feel is happening is we're being fed these fake crises that are easy to deal with because they're not really there, and we ignore the real crises that are there that are difficult and complex and require bipartisan conversation, debate and discussion. So his column, How Democracy Dies, Americans, American Style. This is the threat our democracy, as we watch, as we sit here, is dying. He says democracies used to collapse suddenly with tanks rolling noisily toward the presidential palace. In the 21st century, however, the process is subtler. So, you know, democracy died. Don't look for any tanks or anything. Just take your Krugman's word for it authoritarianism is on the march across much of the world, but its advance tends to be relatively quiet and gradual so that it's hard to point to a single moment and say this is the day democracy ended. You just wake up one morning and realize it's gone. So what is he talking about? I mean, this is something that concerns me, the end of democracy. I think that when the EPA, uh, an unelected drone at the EPA can declare your bathtub a public waterway and come in and tell you you can only take a bath at certain times, you know, when they can uh, talk about you know, banning everything on earth. their have cheeseburgers uh, that the government, the federal government is going to have the power to ban your cheeseburgers because they save the, you know, the environment. When Barack Obama used the IRS to silence the Tea Party. Yeah, that was a threat to democracy. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I thought was one of the true big threats to democracy. And you never heard a word from anybody at the New York Times on this was when President Obama, this was uh, 2011, President Obama told the Justice Department to stop defending the constitutionality of the Defense of Marriage Act, okay? Remember, that was a Clinton era uh, law that said that marriage was between a man and a woman. And basically, Obama said he was not going to defend it anymore. So my question is this. If the legislature can pass a law and the president can just decide that he's not going to defend it or enforce it, right, what makes it a law? And what keeps him from being king? Why isn't he king when he does that? When he decides what the laws are, rather than the legislature? Obviously, the Department of Justice is there to enforce the laws the legislature makes, not to determine that they are unconstitutional. When no one has ever said that. But none of this—none of this—is what is bothering Paul Krugman. What does he see as the great threat to democracy? I will give you three guesses. No, you are wrong. It is Sharpiegate. It is Sharpiegate. Is the great—that is democracy dying? This is. Uh, Donald Trump saying that a hurricane was going to hit Alabama because on CNN they said a hurricane was going to hit Alabama. And then he put forward a map that had a Sharpie showing that it would hit Alabama to defend himself from charges that what he had said wasn't true. This is the death of democracy. I know you don't believe me, but stay tuned and I will tell you about it for first. Let's talk about ExpressVPN. I use ExpressVPN It is one of the few good things that Michael Knowles has ever done for me was tell me about this thing because it encrypts your data. Data so people can't see where you are, what you're surfing on the net, and they can't take your information and steal your life, right? Big tech companies, they will use your IP address. They'll match your internet activity to your identity or location. And that's how they feed you ads, but you use ExpressVPN every time you go online. Search engines and media sites can't see your IP address and your identity is masked and anonymized. ExpressVPN has the added benefit of encrypting hundred percent of your data to keep you safe from people who use you don't want to have your data. ExpressVPN software takes just a minute to set up on your computer or phone. You tap one button and you're protected. Protect your online activity today with the VPN I trust to keep my data safe. Visit expressvpn.com slash to claim an exclusive offer for my fans. That's e-x-p-r-e-s-s-vpn.com slash for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Clavin to get started. And I know, I know what you're saying. I I can hear it. I can hear it's coming across. Wait a minute. It's like I'm psychic. I hear you saying, how do you spell Claven? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So democracy dies for Paul Krugman at Sharpiegate. Donald Trump's inability to admit that he misstated a weather projection by claiming that Alabama was at risk from Hurricane Dorian. It was reported on CNN. We played it yesterday. So it was not Trump's fault. He says it's not reassuring when the president of the United States can't face reality, but it's stopped being any kind of a joke on Friday when the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration issued a statement falsely backing up Trump's claim, which was true. <laughs> OK, think about it. I, think about it, says Paul Krugman. If even weather forecasters are expected to be apologists for, dear leader, the corruption of our institutions is truly complete and of course dear leader is the way they refer to kim in north korea so that's trump he is look okay he's not rounding up people and killing them he's not watching you through your television set he's not oppressing you you're not starving you're doing great your job is good you're making more money but he's just like that guy in north korea because he said that the hurricane was going to hit alabama and put a sharpie on a, this is what people in the New York Times. This is what people in the New York Times are reading. This is what intelligent New Yorkers open up the New York Times, and this is what they see: the end of democracy. I mean, this is a terrible, terrible thing. And and you know they push this. <laughs> you know they they put out a thing. The Washington Post and CNN pushed a study that's saying President Trump's twenty sixteen campaign rallies caused an upsurge, a 226% spike in hate crimes in the areas in which they were held, okay? This, was, this is the kind of thing they're pushing, the end of democracy because of President Trump. So a university, Harvard University PhD student, Matthew Lilly and Brian Wheaton, two of them, uh, get, got together with Reason Magazine associate editor Robbie Suave and, and uh, debunked the original study's finding, right? They looked at the methods that were used to figure this out, all these hate crimes that were coming up whenever Trump held a rally, and they found that using additional data, this is their writing, we collected, we also analyzed the effect of Hillary Clinton's campaign rallies and the ostensible finding Clinton rallies contributed to an even greater increase in hate incidents than Trump rallies. Of course, what they found is that people went to rallies, in, that rallies are held in cities, that there are more hate crimes in cities, that you know the, the people, when they go there, maybe that stirs up other other people who were around. Anyway, it was all nonsense. But this is what they're pushing, the end of democracy. What else? It's not just Sharpie Gate, though. It's not just Sharpie Gate that has Paul Krugman worried. He says, as part of its jihad, there is a jihad. You remember jihad. That's about, We're not allowed to say who has jihads, but we are allowed to say that Trump has a jihad is jihad against environmental regulation. The Trump administration has declared its intention to roll back Obama-era rules mandating a gradual rise in fuel efficiency. First of all, these rules have been more dangerous than anything else. They've caused car, I mean, the car companies get around them. My car does this. I have a a fairly new car. When you step on the brake, the engine stops, (laughs) and then it starts again when you take your foot off the brake, and that that helps them to duck under the EPA rules. I mean, it's all just nonsense. It costs you money. It's not doing anything. Uh, recently, the, the Trump administration took off the bans on methane, and all the uh, environmentalists went nuts. Methane is not a big problem in America, but they just, it putting restrictions on it helps the big oil companies and stops the small oil companies from rising up. You know, let me, let me just show you why this is happening, though, why this kind of fantasy crisis is going on. Congressman Sean Duffy from Wisconsin and his wife Rachel, who they have eight kids and she's pregnant, they went on The View, okay? And they're trying to explain to these elite coastal millionaire entertainers that life has been very tough in the Midwest. That Obama, when he sat around and said these jobs are never coming back, and when people say, oh, we'll give you a guaranteed income, they're talking to people who have lost. Everything, communities have collapsed, factories have closed, people have been out of work, and suddenly, in the Donald Trump administration, they're coming back to work. And the audience, this view audience that has been trained by the view to think what they think and probably agrees with them anyway, sits there and groans and moans and they can't believe that this is an important thing that people in the middle of this country who aren't, they aren't even in New York and L.A. So do they even exist? Is there actually a place between New York and L.A. that they want their jobs back so they can feed their kids, so they can have dignity, so they can have purpose and meaning in their lives and and independence in their lives. And Joy Behar says, yes, but your jobs are bad for the environment. Listen to this meeting between reality and fantasy.
1: As conservatives, we're implementing a lot of conservative policy that are making people's lives better. Their economies, really? yeah, their economies are stronger. Their salaries are rising. Their opportunity is growing. You guys may not see that in New York and in California, but in the middle of America, that's happening. But Congressman, so, but, look, but hold on a second. Go ahead. I, I think what's important to note that they're leaving despite a, a great opportunity to implement policy. They're, they're making decisions individually about their families, like we
2: are. No, no, but you, right you know you have
3: so many children. Don't you worry about the environment? He's terrible on the environment. I would think that'll alone could turn you against. No, uh,
2: okay.
1: That's <laughs> your children's future. I really think it's hard. It, I do believe it's really hard to see when you are in these coastal bubbles. If you live in middle America, we live in rural Wisconsin. The towns have turned around. The factories are back. People have jobs. There's more jobs than there are people to fill them, and, the, and that was not A lot paid. of times at the expense of the environment. But, 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 but one point, Troy, the, the regulations that you want to implement isn't going to cost you your job. The, the, the I, regular, would, I would gladly give up my job if I could have a magic wand to make it all I, go yeah, back to what it was.
0: That's an, that's an amazing thing. The, the, first of all, that she's so self-deceived that her fantasy has engulfed her that she thinks she would give up her job. She might now that she has millions to, to fall back on. But if she hadn't didn't have money, like these people didn't have that kind of money she wouldn't give up her job. She wouldn't give up her job for some magic wand that make things go back the way it was, is what she's saying, to go back the way it was. To when? To when? I mean you know are actually the our output of pollutants has gotten better uh since Trump has taken office it's it's just a pure fantasy and the, this woman is sitting there telling her that these towns that she's never seen and just flies over in first class that she doesn't care about are coming back to life and she doesn't give a damn because she's got this fantasy world in which we're facing this climate crisis that she's willing oh how willing she is to give up her job oh uh, you can just see her the sacrifice the make-believe sacrifice That she is willing to make believe to face to face this make believe crisis is so make believe that it just it moves you to tears how how real her make believe is. Meanwhile, back on The New York Times, let's play. Well, you know, we won't play knucklehead row because this is the one guy on The New York Times page, Ross Douthat, who I actually have a lot of respect for. I don't always agree with him, but he is a an honest guy who faces the problems. He's talking about something else. listen to what Ross Douthat says about fantasy versus reality. It's called called The Age of American Despair. He says, this week, CNN devoted seven hours of programming to climate change, bringing the leading Democratic candidates on stage to grill them on the issue. You can't grill them because we can't have cheeseburgers anymore. But anyway, I have no complaints about the decision, he says, but I wish that some network would set aside a similar amount of time for a more immediate crisis, one that is killing tens of thousands of Americans right now, more than the crack epidemic at its worst, more than the Vietnam War. A new report from the Senate's Joint Economic Committee, and just think about how often you've heard about this compared to climate change, charts the scale of this increase a doubling from 22.7 deaths from despair per 100,000 Americans in 2000, right, to 45.8 deaths per 100,000 in 2017, easily eclipsing all prior 20th century highs. More people killing themselves out of despair in America than ever before. By way of comparison to climate change, this summer's National Climate Assessment estimated that rising temperatures could cause between 4 and 10,000 additional heat-related deaths annually by the end of the 21st century. So in fantasy land and fantasy prediction land and computer, you know, the fantasies of computers, it's possible at the highest worst level that at the end of the 21st century, right, 10,000 people a year could die. That's the worst prediction from a computer that might happen at the end of uh, the 21st century. But had deaths of despair remained at 2000 era levels, approximately 70,000 fewer Americans would have died this year alone. 70,000. I mean, think about this. I know figures are hard to keep up with, but 70,000 fewer Americans would have died. In other words, despair has killed 70,000 more Americans this year than than they would have in 2000. Unbelievable, unbelievable. And then he goes on in a very mature way to talk about the fact that it's very difficult to know what the sources are. Maybe these are different crises. Maybe it's a drug crisis and a despair crisis. Maybe it's a joblessness economic crisis and a drug crisis and a despair crisis. Maybe we have to come to it from spiritual, economic, and technocratic ways. You know, it's a a complicated problem. You know why? Because it's real. Because it's a real problem. The climate, this climate crisis is not a real problem. And so many of the things, you know, reality is important to talk about because as only the truth will set you free and only the truth can solve your problems. And meanwhile, the Democrats are pouring out these things. You know, Daniel French has a column in National Review uh, today where he talks about that almost everything Elizabeth Warren, t- you know how Elizabeth Warren has a plan for that? Everything she talks about, I have a plan for that. He says almost all her plans are unconstitutional and wouldn't make it past the law. As the law stands today, she says she's banned fracking, and, and French says the courts have already made it clear that you're not going to. The government doesn't have the power to ban fracking. Why should the government have the power to ban fracking? I mean, it's one of the best things that's happened uh, to this country, and to the oil markets. It's just taken some of the power away from the uh, sheiks in Arabi, uh, and it's uh, it, it's given us more power, us more energy. It's kind of cleaner energy. What what's the problem? But they're going to ban fracking. But, French says, no, they're not. Her gun ban, probably, unconstitutional. Even her wealth tax is probably limited uh, by the Constitution. They talk about Medicare for all, which would be a disaster. I mean, it would turn our entire health care system into the VA, and you know how that looks. Rahm Emanuel, right? Barack Obama's Rahm Emanuel, mayor of Chicago Rahm Emanuel, says this is absurd.
4: The risk you said, which is appropriate and it measures up, is... Health care is a single issue that Democrats have a 35-point advantage on. President Trump is trying to do everything he can to narrow that down. We've taken a position so far, and the candidates have, through the process, a few have not, about on basically Medicare for all, which is we're going to eliminate 150 million people's health care and we're going to provide health care for people that just come over the border. That is an untenable position for the general election. As you know, George, I just biked around Lake Michigan nearly 1,000 miles, through Michigan and Wisconsin, two really important states. Nobody at a diner ran at me and said, take my health care away. Nobody. This is this is reckless as it relates to, and you don't have to take the position to win the primary, and you're basically literally hindering yourself for the general election.
0: Rahm Emanuel trying to inject a little bit of reality. or is a leftist, is a far leftist, trying to inject a little bit of reality into the minds of Democrats. Let me show you how hard it is to for the left to face reality let me show you how hard it is for the media to face reality because the media now believes you know the media used to believe that they were reporting on reality now they think they're creating it they think that they are if they tell you stuff you'll believe it and then those things will be true this is actually a left wing a leftist stuff philosophical problem uh, that they believe that narrative is reality that if you can change the narrative you have in fact changed reality and since the news and the entertainment business uh, have such a, a a powerful, are such a powerful forces for pushing narrative. They believe that if they push the right narrative, reality will change because we'll all believe it. And that's why they hate comedy. We're going to be talking uh, to Yakov Smirnov, a, a comic legend, in just a few minutes. Uh, and But this is one of the reasons they hate comedy, because they hate for their narrative to be interrupted. Let me just show you, because it's just great a great piece of video and audio. Let me just show you what happens with this. Yesterday, uh, Donald Trump was in North Carolina holding one of his rallies. They're having a, a special election in the ninth congressional district. And he is there to promote the, uh, the Republicans, uh, the Republican candidates, Dan Bishop and Greg Murphy. So he goes out and he starts to talk about NATO and the fact that our allies have not really stepped up. And now they are stepping up. So here's Trump talking to the crowd.
1: For decades, our leaders put global interests and special interests ahead of your interests. You know that better than anybody. And this state knows it better than anybody. They traded away your factories, sold your future squandered your tax dollars, sacrificed your security, and bogged us down in one foreign debacle after another. But all of that has changed. We're respected again. They're all saying, oh, gee, I hope he doesn't do this or that. They've taken advantage of us for years. And I have to say, sadly, in many cases, it's our allies that took the greatest advantage of this country. But now you finally have a president who understands that I'm not supposed to be the president of the world. I'm supposed to be the president of the United States of America.
0: Okay, so that's him saying, you know, he's, he's gotten allies. Sometimes our allies have not treated us fairly as well as our enemies. So Jim Mattis is touring. Again, we've mentioned him a lot because he's on in the media a lot. Former defense secretary, he's touring because... Uh, he's got this book, uh, Call Sign Chaos, is out. And all they've done is tried to get him to talk about his resignation from Trump and how he hates Trump, and he won't do it. He's too big a patriot. He will not attack a sitting president. So Andrea Mitchell, who just hates MSNBC, she just hates Trump. She hates all Republicans. She says she wants him to talk about this and how bad Trump has made it for NATO, how he has ruined NATO, and Mattis won't give it to her. Just listen to her reaction
2: in the last two and a half years
3: they've seen our
2: alliances Mm -hmm. weakened in nato certainly in in asia and in europe
3: you know andrea if you take a look at current events you can always see the tensions because that's what grabs your attention is the tensions in those alliances however Uh, right now you see a NATO that for I think we're into the fourth straight year or fifth straight year of the nations almost all of them increasing their defense budgets. so I could say quantitatively NATO's actually stronger today now there are political tensions those tensions have always been there in NATO where the American presidents I remember all the way back to President Clinton when I became aware of this issue President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, all saying the same thing President Trump is. You've got to pay more. The way I carried the message to NATO when I first went there as a Secretary of Defense was I've sat in this room and you've heard this message before, but the American people are saying they will not care more about your children's future than you care. You've got to pay your fair share.
2: Well, in your resignation letter, returning to that, (laughs)
0: <laughs> that she can't stand it she says can we get back to attacking track can we get back to my fantasy life please stop having facts on my sh- television show a lot of fantasy out there why because reality is hard that's what we're trying to sell people that's why conservatives have a, always have an uphill fight we're trying to sell them reality all right we got yakov Smirnov coming up to talk about Comedy. We gotta say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Come over to dailywire.com and subscribe. Why? Because we want your money, but also because you can be in tomorrow's mailbag. You go to the dailywire. You go to dailywire.com, hit the podcast button, hit the Andrew Claven podcast, hit that mailbag. You can ask me any question you want. I will solve all your problems for a lousy 10 bucks a month. It is a good deal. Come on over. I'm really happy to bring on this guest, Yakov Smirnov. The guy is a legend in American comedy. He escaped from Soviet Russia in the 1970s, uh, came to America without knowing any English. He was on The Tonight Show. He was a regular on Night Court. Uh, he had his own show. I think it was on SNL too. I, I seem to remember that. Uh, and he's currently touring the country uh, during stand-up. Let me just show you a clip. This is an old clip, but it's really good. So I thought I'd bring it on. Uh, this is from uh, when Dangerfield, uh, Rodney Dangerfield, introduced his young comedians as a special in 1984. Is Yakov
2: Smirnov? I am actually from Russia. I was born there, grew up there, worked as a comedian out there. What surprises me, American people don't know we have comedy in Russia. We have comedians. They're there. They're dead. They're there. It's very hard to do comedy in Soviet Union. You have to write out all your material and you send it to Department of Jokes. I'm not making this up. They send it back to you censored. You have to stay with the script. You cannot improvise. If someone heckles you from the audience, you can't say like, your mother wears army boots because she probably does and she will hurt you good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured audience. <laughs> They're not going anywhere. You gotta be very selective, very careful with what jokes you say. If you say like, take my wife please, you get home, she's gone. <laughs> I realized that I wanted to get out of Russia. It's not easy uh, to get out because you apply for a visa, but they give you MasterCard. Yeah. <laughs> There are no things like American Express. They give Russian Express. Don't leave home.
0: Yagov, it's great to see you. Great Thank to meet you. You. I, yeah. you, know, you, just, you just told me a minute ago that you agreed to come on before watching the show. That's so I'm right. glad you actually are willing to sacrifice your <laughs> reputation and uh, possibly, possibly am, your career. I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm
4: hoping that we can find that middle ground where I can helped the reputation of being on your show. <laughs> How is that?
0: No one, no one has ever done that before, so no, that'll be a first. No, but I'm uh...
4: going to I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> I, yes. I appreciate
0: yes. that. So you came out. You were in your 20s, right? Was that I was fair? 26. When you, came out, when you came out of the Soviet Union. That's correct. So tell people, people don't know anymore what it was like. What was it? You were in the Ukraine, I guess, right?
4: I lived in the Ukraine, yes. I, um, I grew up there. I was uh, a comedian there, you were a which, comedian in the Soviet uh, Union. I was a comedian in the Soviet Union, yeah. which is kind of hard for Americans to. Hear. It sounds like oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like Amish electrician. You know, it's just like <laughs> how is that possible, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, but what was happening that, um in that uh, country? You had a lot of. We had a lot of humor, but it wasn't on uh, publicly uh, displayed. Right. So. And the humor really helped us to survive through the really difficult times. So um, it would be interesting to your viewers to know that uh, the word political correctness started in the Soviet Union, 1917, by Lenin. And that was to stay with the party line. And whoever didn't follow that would end up in uh, winter camps uh, yeah. <laughs> the winter, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I grew up um, kind of understanding that fine line that I can't say something in public but people who I trust I can tell something that makes the government or the politics ridiculous and that would create laughter and that would help. And I grew up with my, you know, my parents were funny. And uh, um, I remember asking my mom, I said, "Where, where do people come from?" And she said, "Well, um, you know, there was Adam and Eve, and then they had a baby, and that's how people uh, multiplied." And I went to my dad, and I said, "Dad, how how um, people uh, came about?" And he said, "Well, there were monkeys." and uh they multi or they evolved and so i go back to my mom and i said mom so how come you say there was adam and eve and and dad said that there was monkeys and my mom said well i was talking about my side of the family (laughs) (laughs) so so i grew up with this very funny family and and used humor to kind of release the tension, you know, and tension was all over the place. We had to stand in line for food. I mean, since I was a little kid, you know, my grandmother would put me, I was maybe six, and my job was to stand in line for bread. And it would be like, till, you know, we get bread, which could be a couple of hours. And then she would go in line for milk. And that's how we would, you know, live. And it was normal. Everybody lived like this. We lived in a communal apartment. Uh, nine families lived in one apartment, Um, one bathroom, one kitchen. Uh, And uh, I I tell a joke in in my show that when my parents wanted to be romantic, they would send me to look out the window And then my dad would say, so what do you see in the window? I said, our neighbor's being romantic. (laughs) And he said, how can you tell? I said, because their son is looking at me. So, (laughs) so, And I was the only child because we had only one window. So that's basically, um, it was the beginnings of my uh, comedy career. Uh And then um, I went, um, uh, I got, you know, went through high school, I um, went to the Soviet army, uh, started to tell jokes, but I knew that it had to be very carefully selected. And then after the army, uh, I went to university. And then during that time, I decided I'm gonna start doing comedy professionally, which was a daring thing to do because the censorship was pretty brutal. And so I had to submit my material to department of jokes really, which it, is <laughs> which department sounds jokes, yeah. so bizarre right yeah. but every so we had 16 states in the soviet union every state had a Ministry of culture and each minister of culture had department of dance department of humor department of music singing all of those departments and there were bureaucrats who would Allow you and they it was like a license you would get to get a license to be able to um, to get you know some um, uh, Permission to perform in those different venues and that's how I and they would Censor jokes out that they didn't think was so it was one of those things that it would be it was a challenge to find something that the public would get but the bureaucrat would not
0: <laughs> they wouldn't understand yes yeah, they yeah,
4: wouldn't get yeah. and and so one of the jokes i remember was that um, um that they allowed me to say but it was so obvious uh it was that little ant got married to female elephant and after first wedding night elephant died and the little ant said only one night i enjoyed myself and now for the rest of my life I have to dig this grave <laughs> and they let me tell that joke and, but but the audience could relate that this was the elephant was the communist party and uh, the you know the that's, government
0: that's amazing so you know i, I wish i had a, a lot of time but i don't have too much time i i just want to know when you first came here yes what was your reaction you look at so it's america's it's the 80s the 70s i guess late seventies. Uh, yes oh.
4: 77 i arrived here uh, well, the, uh, the, the, it, it, was, it was a moment, my dad was very much into understanding America and my mom was scared to get out because she was used to the Soviets telling you what to do, when to no. do it, what, you know, what shoes you're going to wear. I mean, they had two kinds of shoes brown shoes and what's wrong with brown shoes, right? <laughs> so yeah, so she was comfortable with that. Yeah. So for her, it was a little bit challenging. I was excited, my dad was excited. My mom, you know, she would uh, go to the department, to the uh, supermarket and she would be depressed because she said, I had a purpose in the Soviet Union. I had to stand in line for this and this and this and this. And now I can walk into the supermarket and I can get whatever I want for yeah. the whole week. Yeah. What am I going to do? I said, well, mom, there is DNV. You can go stand <laughs> in line there. It's yeah, a little you bit know. of the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. So uh, my my excitement, again, I didn't speak English. I wanted to do comedy, but I knew that I need to learn the language. Um, and I was excited, amazed, but scared at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Americans have been so kind and so loving. Um, the the people who kind of, we found an apartment in Washington Heights in New York, and it was like tiny place. And and the lady, Mrs. Landau, who kind of organized all the, she, she paid the difference. We didn't have much money. We only had $50 left. And there was like $240 rent for the first month. And she paid out of her pocket mm. and gave us our first home wow. in America. Wow. And I never imagined that possible because in the Soviet Union, you just wanted to survive. Sure. You, you just, so the altruism was not giving, what is what is that? So I tell a joke uh, in my show that two communists are talking to one another. One said, let me ask you, if you had two houses, would you give me one? And the other said, of course, you're my fellow communist. Of course I give you one. If you had two cars, would you give me one? Yeah, why even asking? That's what we're supposed to do. We share things, of course I give you one. If you had two chickens, would you give me one? No. Why not? I have two chickens. <laughs> 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 so that's that's kind of what I yeah. grew up with. Yeah. And then when I see these possibilities happening, the censorship in the United States and the, and the uh, people are becoming more and more the same. It. I worry from a sense of humor perspective because I know what it feels like to be restricted, to say, to not say this and this and this and this. And uh, I I came here and I felt like I was able to t- take this breath of freedom in. And now I'm feeling that it's, Challenging again for freedom to I, be.
0: I, I mean, it, it, is that something you talk to audiences about? Because okay. I mean, I watch I, I watch comedy on Netflix, and I just see people being torn to pieces for just making jokes, doing yeah. what comedians do. I,
4: I do I do I. But what I do, I paint a picture of what socialism looks like. Uh huh. And it's just not. It. I'm not exaggerating anything. And I love what America stands for. I believe that you need. The left and the right, sure. and because I want to be in the center to build that bridge of laughter across the aisle. Sure. That is, is, when people are laughing together, they know it's true; they can't help it. So that's my goal. When I go to the comedy store and I, you know, do 15-minute set there, and and I talk about that, I talk about socialism, I talk about all the shortages or all the challenges that we have. And I believe that what created this society is so unique and amazing that they were able, because people can be greedy or altruistic in Soviet or in socialism, and they could be greedy and altruistic in America. We were able to create abundance here that makes people want to help
0: others. Easier. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, when you when you look at the comedy scene, I mean, I, this it, what bothers me is not that people attack politicians that I like; it's that they only attack the politicians that I like. Nobody <laughs> attacks the other <laughs> side. I mean, that you know, because I'm I'm happy to laugh at all politicians; they all deserve it. But but it really does bother me that it's become such a limited voice, especially on TV. Yeah. Who do you like that when you today? Who are the new comedians who?
4: You oh like? gosh. Um... Uh, uh, probably would be the guys like Jim Gaffigan no, yeah, and they're they're yeah. neutral. They don't try yeah. to nail anybody. Um, I actually loved uh, Dave Chappelle in his last special, uh-huh. that Sticks and Stones. I think it's very daring and very funny. And he's so likable that you kind of have to <coughs> laugh. And you will laugh on the left or you will laugh on the right because you see the craziness of that. Yeah. Um, so, I think there are, there are people out there that are, you know, um, Joe Rogan uh, also takes on those topics and, and being true to himself and, and staying in the center and helping people kind of see the ridiculous part that we don't get to see unless we use some, some humor
0: yeah uh, well listen I'm, I'm sorry i'm out of time but I, it's, it's great talking to you. i can hear you know i have to say when i'm listening to you i've been around comedy my whole life my father was a comedian am <laughs> i listening to your jokes i can hear how incredibly well crafted they are oh. that elephant and anchoke is brilliant <laughs> <laughs> a brilliant joke yakov smirnov thank you where can people find you if they uh, uh
4: yakov.com okay. or uh yakov underscore smirnov on instagram or twitter
0: Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, thank you Thanks so much for, for coming on. on. I hope your reputation survives. I hope so. <laughs> All right. I got to stop there. I'm out of time. I went a little long, but uh, it was worth it. I'll be here tomorrow. Don't forget the mailbag. Get your questions in. Now I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Clavin Show. Jonathan Hay. And our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Assistant director, Pavel Wydowski. Edited by Adam Saevitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. And our production assistant is Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2019.
3: On The Matt Wall Show, we're not just discussing politics, we're talking culture, faith, family, all of the things that are really important to you. So come join the conversation.